APU. American Public University is proud to present Exploring STEM. Hello, my name is Dr. Bjorn Mercer, and today we're talking to Dr. Shelley Carter, full-time faculty in the School of STEM. And today we're talking about how science fiction examines difficult social norms. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you for having me, Bjorn. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. Our last conversation about Firefly in science fiction was wonderful. This one's great because science fiction writers are able to play with ideas and talk about things that, say, other writers might be hesitant to. And so how does science fiction and how do the writers deal with difficult social norms? Well, I think if we look at the history of science fiction arena and publications, we'll find that just like with real social situations, some people handle it with more grace and tact than others. We can think back to some of the, let's call them the famous authors, Heinlein, for example, or Frank Herbert, and they had very different relationships with the idea of the other. If we take Frank Herbert's work with Dune, he actually did a lot to, in the work, you know, the heroes were the Fremen, the heroes were the other, the the oppressed, if you will, on the planet Arrakis. And that was in direct relation to what he observed of the British interaction with the people they were colonizing, for lack of a better term, and in many cases, oppressing. So arguably, he handled it very gracefully. But then we can look at other situations where it's always the white savior complex, if you will. Um, And we see a lot of that bleeding over into modern movies. I saw a joke several years ago that talked about, you know, do we really need another movie where Matt Damon rescues some ethnic population? Why can't they rescue themselves? Uh, You know, and I think that science fiction gives us both sides of the story, just like we see in in reality. Some people accept that idea of diversity and, and want to embrace that idea of diversity and others do not for a variety of reasons. You know, and that's great. And I like your two ideas there. Um, One about Dune, and then one about, like, say, another movie with the White Savior Complex. So the first follow-up question is, can you go into more detail about Dune and what it was originally, like, what the allegory was originally? And the second one is, why do you think filmmakers continue to do the White Savior story in the sense that it might be an unintentional bias? Let me start with that one actually first, because I think it might be the easier question. And I think in a lot of regards, it has to do with what has been perceived as predominant market share or where you will get the big bucks. And if we think about the world at large and we think about places with disposable income and and places that can throw money into big budget productions, we are in the typically Western world. To date, we have been. And so I think that that is why it has been sort of the white savior complex, because the idea that, okay, big budget action movies, big budget science fiction movies, you are going to have a demographic of, you know, 20 to 40 year old white man going to see this. You are not going to have very many women. You're not going to have very many people of color or minority populations. And we're going to give them something that they know and recognize and they can see themselves in on that screen. And it's only as we continue to examine the need for more diversity that we are seeing different movies come out. I know, for example, timestamp us a little bit. Next week, uh, The Woman King is slated to come out with Viola Davis playing uh, a famous warrior queen from an African tribal situation. And I personally am extremely excited to go see that movie. But I know that that's not necessarily true. And I don't think this is a movie that anyone necessarily expects to be a huge blockbuster. 
even though we have seen movies such as Black Panther in the sort of blockbuster arena. But if we think about Marvel and we think about where Disney took that property, they didn't start with Black Panther. They started with Avengers and Iron Man and the quintessential American billionaire playboy who could do what he wanted because that's where the disposable money has been in the past. So that's the second question. The first question, and I am going to apologize to Herbert's memory that I don't remember the details, but he had traveled as part of the British Empire and had seen, I believe it was especially the interactions with Aboriginal populations in Australia. And this is where I get fuzzy about the exact demographic that he had had seen the British oppressing. But it was certainly a case of the colonists coming in and taking over and, and wanting things to be their way. But instead, the tribal population continued to thrive. The local group continued to live their lifestyle and thrived in the environment, whereas the British did not necessarily. And he wrote that into the idea of Dune, and he wrote that into the idea of that indigenous population being the one who was going to overthrow the oppressor. But he still put himself in there because, again, you have Paul Atreides coming in, arguably from the position of the white savior. Like, yes, he learned from the indigenous people, but ultimately it was not one of theirs who rose up to that position of authority. And that's great. There's so much to unpack there um, because, you know, in the 60s, when Dune came out, that was, by that point, the sunset of the British Empire. For the most part, uh, most of the former colonies had gained independence. But the scope of the British Empire ranged from Canada to India to Australia to different portions of Africa and and the Middle East. Um, Now, from my fuzzy memory, I always thought Dune was an allegory about oil in the Middle East. And it may very well have been. Um, (laughs) That is what, unfortunately, I don't remember. And and I feel extremely bad, actually, because in one of our classes that we offer in STEM, it's about the co-evolution of of science fiction and society. And I actually had a student who chose Herbert's work, and Dune in particular is, is one of their term papers, and I am fuzzy on the details at this point in time. No, that's okay. And for any listener that knows, please put it in the comments section. (laughs) Um, But that's one of the great things about science fiction is that you can take a story and the author doesn't have to tell you exactly what's going on because then you can put your own ideas on top of that story. So like my read of Dune is in the Middle East and colonialism, the British Empire and the French Empire you know, empires back then, really uh, going into the Middle East, you know, what is now, say, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and extracting oil. And that's still an issue today. Colonialism is still felt in many, many countries, not only in Africa, but in the Middle East. And so why do you think science fiction is able to talk about colonialism in a way that people can quite understand without them even realizing it? Um, I think it's Probably a combination of two factors. One, by being somewhat vague, it does allow individual readers to give their own interpretation to it. So, you know, you mentioned that you focused on the oil piece as a female reader of Dune. I was always focused on the power of the Bene Jesuit and, you know, these female figures who were very much in charge, arguably, even if it wasn't overtly. So by leaving out some of the details, There are these enduring stories of struggle. There are these enduring stories of, you know, we know that this happened globally and let each person give their own interpretation to it. So I think that that comes into play a lot. And that's probably a big part of the draw of science fiction. 
And the flip side is, and this is something that we touched upon, I think, when we we discussed Firefly previously, it's not right now. It's not the world that I know. I can choose to view these things from a distance. I can, yeah, maybe put some of my own interpretation on them, but it's not my world. So I don't have to look in that mirror and say, I am contributing to X problem, which is clearly reflected in this work. Instead, it can be like, oh, well, there was this great struggle in outer space. And that's not, I mean, yeah, it kind of makes me think a little bit, but I don't really have to do anything about it. You can take that away from science fiction or away from adult science fiction. You can step back to, you know, Disney movies. And we think about Wally, the cartoon about the trash drone who just spent his entire existence cleaning up human trash. And we can say, oh, this is a cute movie and it's great. And he finds, you know, acceptance at the end. And we don't have to say we have this huge problem with throwing away stuff. So transitioning briefly from uh, Dune to Wally in which, you know, science fiction is commenting about cultural issues. What do you think Wally is trying to say? Are they saying that it's bleak or that we need to have some action? I like to think that it's the intention is never to say it's bleak. I, I like to think that it's always this can be fixed. Um, but the flip side of that is I like to think that the overwhelming evidence of climate change tells people that they need to do things now. And it's more than just don't take the plastic straw from Starbucks. You know, I mean, it's, (laughs) that's, uh, I can think of other works. Um, I don't know if you've seen, there's a a newer version of the Lorax and an animated approach to the Lorax, which is a Dr. Seuss novel original or book originally. And it is about cutting down a forest and, and over exploitation of natural resources and, it starts out in a city of the future in which there are no trees anymore. And the trees have all been destroyed. And then it's sort of a, you know, there's a, let me tell you how we got here scenario in, involved in them, which the trees were cut down and the Lorax is trying to protect the environment. But then as the story comes to a conclusion, the local populace is able to say, hey, look, we found a tree seed and we're going to grow these new trees and we're going to come back from what this was. And so I, I like to think that there's always a nugget of we can come back. We can redeem ourselves if we go too far, if we end up in the Wally situation or we end up in the, the Lorax situation. And I think that that probably comforts a lot of people, even if they don't consciously realize it, because if they opt not to make changes or they opt not to take away the sort of Im- hidden message, if you will, however well it is or is not hidden. And they can say, okay, well, even if I don't change, and I know that this is going to turn out disastrously, humans are great at fixing things and somebody will fix it in the future. So I don't have to worry about it right now. I've had a variety of different podcasts with Dr. Kristen Drexler about climate change. And one of the more difficult aspects of climate change is that we see it, but we don't see it. And so humans don't see it in front of their face. And so they're like, well, not that they're saying that it's, it's not happening, but like, what can I do on an individual scale? And so that's where science fiction can be so helpful in just presenting so many different options, so many different scenarios, from the bleakest of all scenarios to positive ones. And so when we think of science fiction and even throwing in the Lorax, and I remember when the Lorax came out, there was some pushback where, where people were saying, well, they're trying to brainwash kids with this environmental message. So how should writers try to, tell people about environmentalism, if then some people will call it brainwashing. And as a follow-up question to that is, how do we talk about environmentalism when certain people don't think it's an issue or just want to kick the can down the road, if all that makes sense? It does. So I think on the one hand that 
authors and movie producers, screenwriters, whoever, should take the opportunity to bang us upside the head with the two by four. Because that is where you really can explore if we do nothing, this is what happens. If we continue to consume and throw away willy-nilly, we get to Wally. If we cut down all the trees, then we end up with this situation. And the the accusation of brainwashing, I mean, it's it's fundamentally no different than if you disagree with someone, you often hear the phrase, oh, you know, you drank the Kool-Aid. Horrible reference to suicide cult, essentially. But it's easy to make that accusation because then it diminishes the points that you don't want to look at. And in a lot of ways, science fiction and the scenarios that it outlines, be it in text form or be it in movie form, give people an opportunity to look at the other side. And whether they want to accept it or not, whether they want to make the accusation that, oh, well, you're brainwashing kids or you're doing X, Y, and Z, or it's never going to be that bad, you can't take that knowledge back out. And I like to think that human preservation, it does give pause. Like, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe I really don't need that new sofa. Or maybe I really can wear these shoes longer. At the very least, if I'm not going to wear them, I can donate them instead of just throwing them into the landfill. And really... You know, to, to make social change, to make society, modern society and, and complacent humans, I mean, for all that I like to think that I'm reasonably enlightened, I also understand human nature and we are inherently lazy and we want to stick with the status quo. Sometimes you do have to do a big shakeup and it is difficult and it is uncomfortable to change your lifestyle. I mean, for whatever it may be, health reasons, because you've had to wake up that this is a social problem, because you've had to wake up that you are contributing to a long-term environmental problem, whatever it may be. Sometimes you need that harsh reality really, really, really pushed in your face. And I mean, why not start with the young? They haven't picked up all the bad habits that we have. <laughs> and today we're talking with Dr. Shelley Carter, and we'll be right back after a short break. At American Public University, we believe that everyone should have access to a great education. It's not a privilege reserved for the few. And we believe higher education must come with lower tuition. Because when more doors open, more lives change. American Public University. Within reach, without limits. Online classes start every month. Learn more at AmericanPublicU.com. And we're back with Dr. Shelley Carter. So we're talking about how science fiction examines difficult social norms. I'm going to give you a, a few options. So um, Star Trek, Star Wars, and Judge Dredd. Which one of these do you want to talk about as far as examining difficult social norms? Ooh, this is tricky. Um, let's stick with Star Wars because I you know, just was speaking recently with a friend and realized that I am all up to date on Star Wars in terms of cinematic universe other than Rogue One and the Solo movie. So <laughs> I feel more confident discussing that one. Um, so hit me. What have we got? So with Star Wars, what are some different social norms that are examined? I mean, I, I could think of the difference between democracy and fascism that is constantly played with in Star Wars. That one is pretty big, obviously. And I think anyone who has watched them, even if they wouldn't use those exact terms, do understand that that's a fundamental struggle. Even stepping back a little bit, and I'm going to reference the Boba Fett series a little bit, we see in Star Wars an acknowledgement of different cultural norms and different cultural approaches. So we can think of the huts. And yes, the huts are managing a criminal empire, but the huts are maintaining control. Yes, the huts get by on bribes. 
those are accepted practices in non-Western countries. And I think that even if, if we Westerners choose to see that as a distasteful thing, then we need to understand that that is how some of the world works. And so that series and that interaction and that dynamic, especially right now as they're expanding the Star Wars universe to, to consider some of these other side stories or backstories that we didn't have, makes it a little more, I'm not going to say acceptable, but it, it perhaps makes the typical Western viewer be like, okay, I can see how that system came about. I may not agree with that system, but I also in some ways can see the advantage of the system. Because if we think about, you know, some of the oppression that's going on with the different classes in the Tatooine society. So you've got the, I forget what they call the group of kids who are having themselves sort of mechanized that approach. And in the original Star Wars, that mechanization, that cybernetic aspect of Luke Skywalker lost his hand. And obviously that was a big foreshadowing to his interaction, his relationship to Darth Vader, who was half machine, essentially. That was a distasteful aspect. But if we fast forward to where we are in society now, and we don't want to go the RoboCop scenario, but it is becoming more and more likely that in the near future, we will have augmented humans. So let's start thinking about what that's going to mean. Let's start thinking about what that's going to look like. Is it only acceptable if we are using quote unquote augmentation because someone has had a horrible accident? Or is there a point in time at which it becomes socially acceptable if you have the interest and the means that you can be augmented? How does that then interplay into societal interaction? Do we go the route and it's sort of the cliched argument, oh, we're going to have the have and the have nots. But as you just pointed out, that's fundamentally what our world is already. We in Western society do not realize that if we look across the globe, everyone here is a have. I mean, even those that we think of as being very, very poor and, and living in need, which they absolutely are living in need compared to other countries, they're not. And so I think places like the Star Wars universe and the the lower tech planets allow humans to kind of think through that or allow viewers to think through those those differences. The Tuscans. So throughout all of the Star Wars movies, the Tuscans have been viewed as an annoyance. But in Boba Fett, we, we get a backstory that they were, I believe, the original inhabitants of the planet. And then foreigners from space came and destroyed their planet. And that the entire planet is basically being destroyed for spice. And it's a horrible story. But if we look at real world applications of this, we unfortunately see that happening, have happened and still happening today in our world. Absolutely. And you made reference to the conflict over oil. And, and that, I think, is very prominent in most Western minds, especially because obviously we need oil, we need fossil fuels to drive most of our society. But we see it in other places. And I'm, I'm thinking back to the movie Medicine Man, which sort of brought to light the approach to clear cutting the rainforest versus the impacts on us from what type of pharmaceuticals are we potentially losing. So we do have that aspect of let's exploit, let's exploit, let's exploit, but we don't pause to say, okay, what are we losing? What are we really doing here for the convenience of I want this right now? It is tough going to Star Wars again. It seems like you would think in a universe where Star Wars exists and you can hop from planet to planet and relatively quickly that they would figure out all of the internal problems on each world, but but they hadn't. Even during the Republic, slavery still existed. And you'd have to be like, wait, why is there slavery in Star Wars? But I think that's a really great storytelling device because 
although slavery is illegal in our world today, it still exists, unfortunately, but it's hidden. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I know we have a, a problem here in the States with human trafficking is unfortunately alive and well. And it does, I mean, for a variety of reasons, it tends in the U.S. to be related more to um, the sex trade, for lack of a better term, but it happens all around the globe. And we still exploit each other, we as humans. There's always going to be some segment and, and arguably the default because it's the path of least resistance is what, what do I need to do to get ahead and not inconvenience myself. For my last question is about how science fiction examines difficult norms and cultural norms. Do you think Star Wars does a good job of examining how the Empire became the Empire for control? Because in the beginning, I think the Empire, the, the movies, was just brutal and they're the bad guys. You saw them walking, you shot at them. I think the more recent stories, and I'm not talking about all the novels and graphic novels, but you know, the more the, just what's you know, series and films shows that there is a little more complexity with the Empire. Not that the Empire does good holistically per se, but that the government got to a point where people thought that authoritarian action was needed and a fascist state was needed. What was the question? Because I don't disagree with anything you say um, or anything you just said. No, I do. I, I do see what you're saying. And and I think that is an important thing for us to look at. And if we look at, at modern politics and what we believe, and some of us still believe and some people did believe were the inherent checks and balances in our political system, for example. But I do also think that it is easy as humans to look and say, okay, I see all of this suffering. I see this and this and this being wrong. And if these people over here want to just deal with that, then I'm just going to let them deal with that. And if it means that I don't get to do X, or it means someone else doesn't get to do Y, that that's okay, because we're going to deal with this big problem. And it does snowball. And that is what we saw. And, you know, if we don't, we're not looking at the original trilogy, but we're looking instead at the next set of three movies that came out, the prequels, where we see really the empire becoming the empire. We see the chancellor becoming, declaring himself emperor, and we see the birth of, of Darth Vader. I think that there was perhaps some poor reception to that series of movies, but if you go back and watch it now and just, I mean, kind of se separate from some of the, the cinematic aspects and just listen to the dialogue and listen to the words and listen to the arguments that Anakin Skywalker was making in the second and the third movies about... Yes, if this is what it takes to fix these problems, if this is what it takes so that we're not having these oppressions go on, then I'm going to back that and I don't really care what he does otherwise. And I think that there is an unfortunate preponderance of people who would make a similar choice. It's not just so much, I don't want to deal with this, but there is something to be said for the problem being too big. And thinking, I, as an individual, can't do anything about this. There is no way I can move the needle. And I think this applies not only to societal issues, such as these we're talking about, oppression and fascism, but also the climate change problem. I individually can't do anything to fix this, so I'm just not going to do anything. But if somebody big wants to take action, then okay, I'll go along with it. There's an inherent human nature to glom onto an authoritarian figure. And I don't know why humans do this, but we do. I mean, you just look throughout history. I mean, why is democracy been more of a more recent phenomena versus throughout most of history, it being kings and queens and 
different things like that where, where it's an authoritarian state that controls most countries in the world. So what we're living through is, is more unique in human history. And so, but with so many different problems, heaven forbid there's somebody that comes onto the scene and says, I am the only one who could fix it. And is charismatic, there will always be a percentage of the population who says, yeah, this person will fix it. I think you see that in Star Wars. In Dune, I don't know enough about Dune, so I apologize, but there's an emperor in Dune. Again, you'd think, why is there an emperor? In a world where they span different solar systems and, you know, why are there royal families that control entire planets? But maybe that goes more with human nature was more akin to that before the great democratic experiment of the last few centuries. It could very well be. And we could also think through human nature of there is comfort in knowing your place even if you don't necessarily agree with it. You know, I think of some of the devil's advocate arguments that were made actually against Mother Teresa when she was being considered for sainthood. And one of the key arguments was one aspect of her ministry in India was, this is what you were born to. This is your lot in life. You just need to accept it, which is very counter to what we think of in the U.S. We have this idea that if you work hard enough, you can achieve the American dream. You know, you can pull yourself up from your bootstraps, I know is an, an old phrase. But if you think about that, I mean, that is, by the laws of physics, that is impossible. But we, we put forward that idea that you can do it in the U.S. But in the rest of the world, I mean, that's not, the rest of the world doesn't necessarily prescribe to that particular aspect, and I think, or that particular mindset. And I think that is largely to do with human nature. Everyone can't be on top. That's the simple reality of the situation. So if everyone can't be on top, then there is comfort in knowing, okay, this is where I am. And these people above me are going to deal with these things. And then I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to think about them. I think that relates to to your, you know, you outlined the social structure of Dune quite well. You know, there, there's an emperor in charge of all these millions of planets, practically, Many of the planets have a ruling class, very similar to the idea of kings and queens and, you know, the high king idea with the emperor. And it's sort of that trickle up effect. We see it. I mean, arguably, that's the same structure we have politically here. We individual citizens elect representatives that go up to the national level. They make decisions that go up to the next level, the president. And if something goes wrong, well, we're going to blame the guy at top. It's not us and who we what we did at this level not really even the people we elected. It's the collective decision didn't matter. One person made that final decision. And with Dune, it makes sense why there is that structure. Because again, you go throughout most of human history, that structure existed. And when you look at Star Wars, you see that there was a republic and it fell because you understand how in democracy things get bogged down. There's political infighting and there's inefficiency. But then with an emperor... There becomes one person who can do anything they want, and that one person can literally cause the deaths of millions. Absolutely wonderful conversation. Uh, Shelly, any final words? It's always entertaining to talk through different scenarios. And so today we're speaking with Dr. Shelly Carter about how science fiction examines difficult social norms. And of course, my name is Dr. Bira Mercer, and thank you for listening. For more information about our university, visit us at studyatapu.com. APU, American Public University.